If you would turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians. This summer, I have the opportunity to preach in the evening services. So we take a break from Kids for Truth. And I mentioned last week, in the first week of that, that I was, Lord willing, planning to preach through the letter of 1 Thessalonians. Today, I've kind of dragged that into the morning. And tonight, we'll do something different. But I've titled the series through the, through the letter of 1 Thessalonians, Faith that perseveres under rising pressure. Faith, faith that perseveres under rising pressure. And kind of the theme that I've taken for our study, and it, it'll be brief because it's five chapters over a limited number of sermons, Lord willing. But the theme that I'm taking for our study is that God preserves those that he calls by sanctification. How do we keep our faith when the pressure against our faith increases. That's the situation that the Thessalonians were in. We considered from Acts 17, that was one of the places that the Jews started a riot against Paul. And Paul had to leave. This is where they dragged Jason out because they were looking for Paul and Silas and Timothy. Paul has to escape to Berea. And the Jews actually follow him there. But then these believers are left there in that city with their own uh, fellow countrymen with that same kind of animosity towards what they've believed. How do we maintain our faith when pressure is rising? And the theme that Paul draws out is God does this. If God calls them to faith, he preserves them by sanctifying them. And last week we considered from chapter 1 the encouragement of a growing church. Paul remembers, you see there in verse 2, and verse 3 of chapter 1, we give thanks to God always for you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your genuine faith, your work of faith, your labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of God. He remembers their genuine faith that had real fruit, and he was encouraged by them. And he's remembering this and sharing his thankfulness for them to encourage them to continue in it. The encouragement of a local church, excuse me, of a growing church. He demonstrates it to them. He shares his own joy at remembering them. To establish for them that their, the beginning of their faith was authentic. Even though his time was cut short, God had really begun to work in them by his spirit through the word. Paul could testify to this. They themselves could testify to this. Other churches were testifying to this, if you read the rest of chapter 1. And they needed but to continue in that same course. That's the foundation that he's laying at the beginning of this letter. In our age of knockoff branding, if you ever shop at Aldi, you know what I'm talking about. In our age of knockoff branding, sometimes we find ourselves wondering if we've been given the authentic product. One of the classic examples is a, is a Rolex watch, right? A standard Rolex watch can cost upwards of $10,000 with many going for much more than that. But in certain parts of the world, you can find these sold for, on the street for a fraction of the price, right? It's almost kind of a stereotypical kind of product that gets knocked off because it's so valuable. And that fakery perhaps is obvious, but sometimes 
the fakery isn't so obvious. The price might be closer to an original product. Maybe somebody has the audacity to charge $8,000 for this Rolex that they're calling a Rolex. The copying may be better. The salesman might be more authentic than a guy in the street with a bunch of watches in his coat, right? So sometimes we're looking to verify what we've received by checking into who is giving it to us, right? Maybe you think you can think of examples of this is an authorized retailer of this product. Is the merchant authentic? Is he approved by the manufacturer? Is he licensed to be doing what he's doing? And perhaps when we find out that he really is, maybe we see his credentials, we have great confidence that what we've received is the real deal because the person we interacted with was doing the right thing for the company for the right reason, in the right way. <clears throat> well, in chapter 2 of this letter, <clears throat> excuse me, Paul turns the Thessalonian Christians' attention f- from what he remembers of them to what they remember of him. If you look in verse 9 of chapter 1, these other churches themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you. So he's recalling what happened there. But then look at chapter 2, verse 1. For you yourselves know that our coming, he's appealing to their memory of his ministry. He especially focuses on the teaching ministry that they had. You'll notice this as we read, but I'll draw your attention to it. He talks about their coming. If you look at the end of verse 2, we had boldness to speak the gospel amid, amid much opposition. He's referring to concentrating on his verbal ministry, his teaching ministry through verse 6. Verse 3, our exhortation. Verse 4, just as we have been approved, so we speak. And then in verse 7, he changes to draw their attention to his behavior and the behavior of his team, Paul and Silas and Timothy. The ministry of their example, not their teaching ministry, but their, their example. Verse 7, we proved to be gentle among you, having an affection for you. We imparted our lives, verse 9. You recall our labor, our work for you. Verse 10, you are witnesses, so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behaved towards you believers. So you, you see how he's commending his ministry, but it's really in the, under the headings of his verbal teaching ministry and then his his ministry of example and his behavior, their behavior among them. And then in verse 12, where it's all going, as he reminds them of his goal in all of this. And we'll read the passage in a moment. But so that, he says, you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. This is why he taught and behaved as he did. I believe what Paul is demonstrating in this chapter is that God-approved ministers, pastors, missionaries, pursue God-pleasing goals using God-appointed means. His point is to authenticate his ministry, to encourage them about what they had received. It was the real deal. Look at who gave it to you. That should give you confidence that it really was the right thing. And he's demonstrating that God-approved ministers pursue God-pleasing goals using God-appointed means. And this is why, for instance, he makes frequent appeal to their memory. Because 
that these people, in his absence, that they themselves could testify that Paul's ministry was of God, was further proof to them of the veracity of their faith. They had proof that he wasn't a fraud. He really had served God. So this is certainly for pastors to consider. This is a challenge to them, a direct challenge to them to conform their ministry to God's model in Scripture. And of course, we could look at other uh, lists of qualifications and things. But lest we think this is only for pastors, Paul does write this to a church, doesn't he? So this is relevant for the church. And we should consider for our own encouragement how we, in our own church, being very clear about what godly pastors ought to be doing helps us in a number of ways. It certainly can help us why our pastor, or pastors, Lord willing, does what he does or doesn't do. Paul addresses that. Certainly this can help us pray effectively for our pastors as we understand what God has called them to do. This certainly is a reminder to us about Uh, the model that we have for us for our Christian life in a pastor that we should be modeling our own Christian life after. Honestly, this is something for our very immediate situation. This is the kind of thing that we should be evaluating as we're looking for a pastor, uh, evaluating according to Scripture, pastors by. But then also, we should consider if a pastor is ministering as approved by God, we should consider the kind of authority, the authorization that they have from God to be doing what they're doing. And we should pay heed to that. To a pastor who is approved by God and is demonstrating that by ministering for God-pleasing goals by God-appointed means. John Knox once said, the, the Scottish pastor, I will not run where I haven't been called. He refused to be a pastor if God did not call him to a church. But God did call him to that particular congregation, and he felt compelled to do it. And if God does call a pastor to a particular ministry, and in his wisdom he he sends him to a particular flock, that church is responsible for how they follow that God-appointed pastor. So this is for all of us, not just pastors. But back to it. Paul's point is to show them that God-approved ministers pursue God-pleasing goals using God-appointed means. Let's read the first 12 verses of 1 Thessalonians 2. God's word says, For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming, or you may have a note there, our entrance to you was not in vain. But after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. For our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. Not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles we might have asserted our authority. But we proved to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, 
how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behaved towards you believers. Just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children. So that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. This morning we're going to consider this under three headings. That God authorized pastors serve God by preaching that he approves of in verses 1 through 6, this verbal ministry. And then God-honoring pastors serve God by behavior that he approves of in verses 7 through 11. And then finally in verse 12, God-pleasing pastors serve God by goals that he approves of. This is an authentic, a God-approved, a God-sent, God-commissioned pastor who serves God by preaching and behavior and goals that God has approved. So first, Paul is... By, by God's grace, reminding them that he was a God-authorized God pastor who served God by preaching that he approved of. And you see this first in verse 1, that he says, Their entrance was God-enabled. You yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. I mentioned last week that if you look in verse 9, they themselves, of chapter 1 rather, they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you. This word reception, translated in English, is the same word in chapter 2, verse 1 in Greek that's translated here as coming. It's asodos. It's the same word, same Greek word. It refers to this official coming of a philosopher to a town amid much uh, publicity to promote his philosophy of life and to gain a following for himself. This is well attested to in, in the Greek writings of the day, secular writings, that there were very often in prominent cities philosophers coming to, coming through. You've heard about Greek philosophy. The Greeks loved their philosophy. And often it was so almost, it was almost like that Rolex salesman. They were often just peddlers of ideas, seeking money. It was a way, maybe if we drew a contemporary comparison, it's like a guy with a microphone who starts a podcast. He's looking to promote his ideas, right? Anybody can do it. Anybody who had the least bit of education. And though Paul wasn't a, a peddler of God's word, he says elsewhere, just trying to get a following for himself or trying to, to make money off of his teaching, he uses this word here to refer to how famous their ministry had become through their entrance into that city and their reception, their coming to those believers. Because it was so remarkable what God had done through the gospel in their midst. These people, if you look in verse 10 of chapter 1, uh, verse 9, they turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. Can you imagine seeing this in our own town? People who very well may actually have statuary idols in their house, houses, turning from idols to serve a living and true God. It's remarkable when God saves a person. So he's talking about their entrance, the entrance of Paul and Silas and Timothy. And he says... It was not in vain. It was profitable, is what he's saying. It wasn't empty. Profitable with the wonderful result of the, the miraculous conversion of these lost sinners. 
some philosophers perhaps would come to a city and they would leave with no followers, having made no money. It was profitless. It was a vain stop, an empty visit. It was pointless. But Paul was different, not just with the results. He, he didn't come for himself, but on a mission from God. And God used his word in the hearts of these people to bring life where there was none. God accomplished his purpose in Thessalonica to rescue sinners. They had been transformed as they believed the message of the gospel. God had opened their eyes. Their blind eyes had been given spiritual sight. And Paul is saying that his coming to the city to preach the gospel was aided by God. That was the only reason it wasn't vain. God enabled them to be effective in their ministry rather than fruitless. His coming wasn't in vain. It was enabled by God. But not only was their ministry profitable with God's help, in verse 2 he says their evangelism was empowered by God. He says, but after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. Do you know what he's referring to here? After we had suffered and been mistreated in Philippi? That was the previous stop before Thessalonica. And it's in Philippi, wasn't it? He met the Philippian jailer. Did he meet him on the street? No, he met him in jail, right? Where he worked. In Acts 16, Paul and Silas had been viciously dragged into the marketplace. They had been brutally beaten with rods, cruelly imprisoned, secured with stocks, severely wounded, and then let go. And then they went straight to Thessalonica, and it almost happened again, right? There was opposition there, too, that culminated in a bloodthirsty mob that wanted to silence him, and they got Jason instead. Why do mobs do this? Well, they're angry, right? They're angry at whatever's going on, often because they want to silence someone. Excuse me either by killing them or by so intimidating them that they choose never to speak again. This kind of mob mentality, it's just, it's naked, brutal coercion. And it's devilish. And Paul knows it. You know how Paul knows it? Because he had done it too. Remember when he was the persecutor of the church and he was dragging people to prison, trying to intimidate them, trying to shut them up from spreading the gospel? He hated it before God rescued him. And, God, and Paul recognizes how much the devil loves to use this tactic to intimidate people into silence. And in our own power, I think we'd all have to say, we are easily cowed into silence, aren't we? When we meet even the slightest opposition to the gospel. But in God's power, there is nothing that can stop the, opposition, stop the spread of the gospel. That's the difference. Whose strength we're depending on. And this is what boldness is. He says, we had the boldness in our God. What is boldness? It's confidence to speak in the face of opposition. When we speak confidently in front of our loving family that all agree with us, we don't call that being bold, right? What do we call that? We call that being comfortable. You're bold with the gospel when you speak confidently in the face of opposition. 
You may even have a, a personality that's naturally forward and willing to say things that other people aren't. And maybe the Lord has gifted you a certain way to evangelize effectively. But most of us don't have that natural tendency to speak knowing that we have a hostile audience because that's what Paul is talking about. That's not a natural inclination. That's something produced in us by the Holy Spirit. That's what Paul is talking about. It's not natural. It's not a natural disposition to be bold with the gospel. That's something that God must do. And the point is, evangelism that God approves of is evangelism that he empowers. Of course, it is possible for us to preach the gospel under our own strength, right? And if that happens, I think we would have to say, if we see that happening with Paul, if Christ is preached, he's going to rejoice about that. Praise the Lord. But that doesn't mean that God is pleased with preaching that relies on the arm of flesh rather than on the arm of God. God is pleased when men preach the gospel in his strength. A pastor is authorized, or a pastor who is authorized by God serves God by preaching in God's strength which, with the boldness that God gives him. Just as God is pleased with all of his people who will evangelize in his power. So if you find yourself afraid to speak, and I think that would at various times be every one of us. Certainly we need discretion and we need wisdom as to when to speak and what to say, but if you're just hindered by fear, pray. The Lord can produce this in you by his spirit. And if you want an example of this, look, we won't turn there, but we could look at Acts 4 when Peter and John are preaching and the Pharisees are bringing them in and threatening them and eventually beating them with the exact same tactic, trying to silence them. And they're marveling at these men at the boldness that they have. Why are they marveling? Well, they may have remembered when they put Jesus on trial and all of these same men ran away into the woods. They didn't have a natural boldness, did they? When they were with Jesus. But now that the Spirit is in them, empowering them, they have a boldness that is undeniable. And it's from God. So we should pray for it. Paul knew he needed this. He needed something besides his own resolve to be a faithful minister of the gospel. Can you imagine getting beaten by a mob and then going to the next city and preaching the same thing all over again? And then seeing another bloodthirsty mob come up and going to the next city and doing it again and then them pursuing? This is boldness. The man is great. He's out of his mind. No, he's ministering in God's power. God is giving him supernatural boldness. God is delighted to help us. God will strengthen you to speak for him. Depend on him, not on yourself. And all this help that they had from God to preach boldly, Paul says, is proof of the source of the the moral exhortation that Paul was engaging in. And he says that their speech was God-approved in verses 3 and 4. We had the boldness in our God to speak the gospel of God amid much opposition for our exhortation, he says. And he describes what it didn't come from, the source that it didn't come from, and then in verse 4, where it did come from. So what is the model of their exhortation, even as he negates certain ways that he didn't speak? He's using this word, uh, 
Paracleto, you've heard of the paraclete, the Holy Spirit, the comforter, the exhorter. This is what Paul often does. And when Paul exhorts people, just like anywhere you find exhortation in Greek literature, this is something that you often read in Greek letters of the time, even secular letters. They're exhorting, they're using the same word. It's, they're exhorting after a model of behavior. That's what this, what this word means. And anytime you read it in Paul, he's, you can look for what is his model of behavior. Most of the time, who is it? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. But there are times when he's saying, imitate me as I imitate Christ. He's holding himself up by God's grace as a model of behavior. This is what exhortation, moral exhortation is. But when Paul says he exhorted them, he's referring to the exhortation to live the Christ-like life to which God had rescued them. This is what he did in every city. Paul, Paul never came preaching moralism, right? Trying to clean people up so that they could be saved. Telling them to stop being immoral and to stop worshiping idols so that God could save them. Maybe he would point out the sin and show them from God's law how it was sin and how they were condemned but he wasn't telling them to change because he knew they couldn't. They needed to be saved. No, Paul came preaching the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. Paul would preach the gospel. He would show people that Jesus was the Christ of the Old Testament, God's Son, the only sacrifice for sin, the only way to God, and then urge people to repent of sin. And believe in him alone for salvation. He would sow, he would water, but who would give the increase? God would give the increase. But then, once people were converted, they believed in Christ and had a new life, a new heart, that he stopped preaching Christ? No. He would set Christ up for them as their example to follow. And he would urge them and exhort them to live like Christ. He would preach Christ for salvation and he would preach Christ for sanctification. For only those who have new hearts and new natures can live new lives. So that's the model that he set up for them. Our exhortation does not come from error or impurity, or by way of deceit. It's pure. He's not trying to deceive them into a new way of living, not trying to trick them, some shortcut. But what was the constraint of their speech? Just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, in this way we speak. Not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. They spoke just as they had been authorized to speak. Paul refers in Galatians 2 to the fact that he had been sent to the Gentiles, even as Peter had been commissioned to the Jews. And that was often the source of animosity towards Paul's ministry from the Jews. That's what it was in Thessalonica. The Jews were jealous. They hated that he was preaching to the Gentiles. The Pharisees certainly hated this, but this was exactly what God intended Paul to do, was to preach to the Gentiles, and Paul loved that he was able to do that, even as he carried a great burden for his own people, the Jews, and often started in the synagogue until he was rejected there. And that opposition that he faced 
gave him opportunity to prove what he says next, that he wasn't speaking to please men. Because if he was, if he was trying to please men, wouldn't he? He would have tailored his message so it didn't offend the Jews or contradict what they thought about Jesus or about the law because they didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. And he certainly would have stopped telling the Gentiles that they could come to God through Jesus Christ if he was trying to please men. Paul had lots of opportunity to change what he said or alter how he preached in order to please people around him. People were persecuting him for that exact reason, to coerce change in him, to constrain him to change. But no, Paul and his associates were constrained to speak for the approval of God, who could see into their very hearts. Paul knew the truth that God sees motives and desires and intentions in the heart of men. God witnesses what we think, what drives you. God can see that. Nobody else can, but God can. He is the one who searches hearts. And God is always evaluating what we say and do. Sometimes even against what is going on inside of us. And this is what God's judgment is like. It's based on evidence. And God's evidence is the best evidence because it's irrefutable. It's indisputable evidence. And when God brings up that evidence against sinners, there's going to be nothing that they can say because they know what they've thought. And Paul is saying that this kind of speech is the kind of speech that's approved by God in a pastor. Exhortation that takes Christ as its model. Not, not something less than him, but Christ Jesus himself, the author and the finisher of our faith. And also preaching that pleases God first and foremost. This is speech that is approved by God. And for proof that their motive was ultimately to please God in all this, Paul reminds them of his methods, what he did and did not do while he was there, as confirmation that he was a genuine minister of the gospel. And he says that their motives were, in fact, God-attested. Verse 5, For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, they could testify to this, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ we might have or we would have been right to assert our authority. And what he's saying is this. I was not attempting to gain a following by flattering words. Paul did not engage in flattery. What is flattery? It's insincere praise, isn't it? And we use it to gain favor or to gain influence. Someone said flattery is the art of telling a person exactly what he thinks of himself. Flattery is the art of telling a person exactly what he thinks of himself. Don't we tend to have high thoughts of ourselves? And when someone can, can discern how we flatter ourselves and then tell us the same thing, we love them. They're the best person we've ever met. They're our best friend. And they gain influence with us. Someone is, somebody else said, Augustine said, it's better to be persecuted for having said the truth than to be favored for having flattered. 
people who teach and lead and just work with people have lots of opportunity for flattery. And humanly speaking, it's a great way to win friends and influence people, isn't it? Because you can get a lot done if you flatter people. And perhaps that was a temptation at various times. If, if I could just convince him to do this. But what makes it so detrimental is that it's based on a lie. It's insincere. It's not real. The person saying what they're saying doesn't mean what they're saying. What they're saying might not even be true. And what Paul is saying is that he dealt in truth, even when it was uncomfortable. Paul dealt in truth with people. He would not lie to them. He would not heap praise on them that was insincere. He told them the truth. And that's not always popular, is it? Indeed, it's often not popular. There have been many people who have left many churches simply because they've been told the truth rather than what they want to hear about themselves. And that is the effect that light has on the darkness, isn't it? People in darkness are not drawn to the light. They recoil from it. And often, maybe as they're leaving a church, they want to knock out the light bulb when they go, right? People hate the light when they're in the darkness. Paul was a very persuasive man. He had a good education. He knew philosophy. He knew how to influence people. He could have made quite a following for himself. He could have flattered a lot of people. But that is not what he was about. It was nowhere to be found in him. His motive truly was to please God. And one evidence of that, that they could attest to, was that Paul refused to engage in flattery. He always told them the truth, even when that wasn't what they wanted to hear. That's a sign of a minister approved by God. He was not attempting to gain a following by flattering words. But also, he was not attempting to gain a fortune by false piety. Look at verse 5 again. Nor with a pretext for greed. And he calls God to witness to this. He wasn't putting on a mask to cover up his covetousness, he's saying. He wasn't using piety as a way to, to cover greed. Scripture, of course, has many warnings about the love of money, especially to pastors. Money should never be the motive for being a minister of the gospel. That is not a good motive to pursue being a pastor. He was not seeking a fortune. He was not attempting to gain fame by flaunting his authority, he says in verse 6. Nor did we seek glory from men. And you may have a marginal note there uh, about making himself burdensome. He wasn't seeking glory, even though he could have made himself burdensome. Things that are, are glorious are heavy. When you, when you think about this word, they're, they're significant. They carry weight. Maybe you think about being in the presence of a, an important person and you think about the gravity of a situation. I don't know if that's at all related to the, the significance of that person and the heaviness of that person. You know, whoever's laws of... Physics, the, the heavier something is, the more gravity that it has. I don't know if those are connected. But we might say that that person is weighty. He, is, he has a certain kind of glory. He contrasts this in the next verse with becoming gentle in verse 7. We became babes, you might have in the margin. What he's talking about is that 
even though he's pretty significant as someone who has seen the risen Christ and been personally commissioned by him, he did not insist on being treated as such. He didn't insist on being treated as significant as he was. Probably he's speaking about being paid while he's being there. If you were, we won't turn to it now. But if you look in 2 Corinthians, he speaks of not being a burden to the Corinthians, even though God would have approved of him earning wages from the church there. Instead, he was living off the gifts of uh, churches sending money from Macedonia, maybe even this church. He didn't want to make himself a burden to them. In any case, whatever exactly he's talking about, this again is a wonderful example of a God-approved minister of the gospel. That even if a man does have some significance, whether that be education or experience or whatever, he's humble about it. And the point in all of this is about his motives. Paul was not about advancing himself. He was about advancing the Lord Jesus Christ. He exalted Christ. He didn't exalt himself in his ministry. And any pastor, indeed any Christian, we would do well to heed this example. So Paul had a robust uh, teaching ministry in Thessalonica with God's help. God approved of what he said. He authorized the message, and he helped Paul deliver the message with great effect. And these people knew it because they had experienced it personally. They knew what had happened in their midst because of the ministry of this, this small missionary team. And that was a support to their faith. Not only had they begun their Christian lives believing the right thing, living the right way, as he establishes in chapter 1, but they had done so under the ministry of men who were proclaiming God's message, God's way. Everybody, this church, the other churches, Paul himself, God even, were witnesses to this. But there was more to their ministry than just teaching in Thessalonica. This team also conducted themselves in a certain way, to reinforce the message that they brought from God in pursuit of God's goal for these new converts. And Paul turns in verse 7 to talk about their behavior while they were there. And it establishes this point for us that God-honoring pastors serve God by behavior that he approves of. And you see in verse 7 that in tenderness toward the flock, they minister gently we proved to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Rather than demonstrating their own significance in God's plan and spreading the gospel, which they wouldn't have necessarily been wrong to do, short of pride, these men purposely brought themselves down to the level of the flock they were ministering to. That's what he's saying. This is the opposite of being the kind of rough that comes from selfish ambition. They were like a mother of a newborn whose entire being just longs to nurture her crying baby. That's a a kind of tenderness and gentleness that you can't find anywhere else in the world. And it's a kind of tenderness that only God can give a man for a flock that God entrusts to him. A willingness to do any service, to suffer any humiliation, to lay aside any right, all for the sake of the spiritual well-being of God's people. Like a mother 
who ministers in any way that she's called upon because she loves that baby. You may have heard of the kind of pastor who's convinced that his people just need some, maybe some tough love here and there. And they go around kind of, as it were, smacking people upside the head, you know. So they finally get it spiritually and they just shape up. Because you need to shape up. You need to get it. I'm through with you, you know. And maybe we think we need that sometimes. Maybe we do. Perhaps we even want that in a pastor. But that's not how Paul conducted himself. Toward God's fledgling flock there in Thessalonica. He wasn't rough. He was gentle. He wasn't coarse. He was tender. He was self-abasing rather than self-exalting or ambitious. He lowered himself rather than being exalted, as perhaps was his right as God's apostle. But it wasn't just that Paul and Silas and Timothy conducted themselves in a humble and gentle way in the midst of this new flock, but in their ministry, genuinely out of love for the flock, in verse 8, they ministered self-sacrificially. He says they had an intense longing for these people, having so fond an affection for you. This intense longing... They had such a longing, such that they were just elated to share the gospel with them. We were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives. They were thrilled to spend their lives for these people. All because, he says at the end of verse, they were simply delighted to minister to those who were spiritual family. You see that in verse 8. You may have a note in your margin, because you had become beloved to us. He's called them brethren. They are in the family of God because God put them there. God made them in the beloved. And now they get to minister to their brothers and sisters in Christ, and they're just delighted. And because Paul and Silas and Timothy felt this way, they wanted nothing else but to minister in this way, spending their lives preaching the good news here. Have you ever found a a birthday present for a, a friend or a spouse or a child that you you just know is perfect for them. And they have no idea what it is. They didn't ask for it. You know they're going to love it, not because they've been begging for it, but just because you know them. And you know they'll just be so pleased about it. You are well pleased in that present for that person. You are just, you're just tickled pink, right? We say that sometimes. Maybe you don't. You're just delighted. And maybe it costs you a little bit more than you wanted, but it doesn't matter because you're just excited to give it to them. You're excited to see their enjoyment and, you, and see them use it. That's the sense of what Paul's communicating. He had no reservations. He had no regrets. None of it was put on. He really was delighted to be there because God had made these people very dear to him. And those that God loved... Paul loved. And those for whom Christ died, Paul was willing to die. He labored self-sacrificially. He gave himself, laboring with everything that he had, to minister to those for whom Christ died. That is pleasing to God, and it's pleasing to Christ. And it's a wonderful example for any of us to follow. But then you see in verse 9 that because of their understanding of the flock, they ministered tirelessly, This is why I think he's probably talking about ministering free of charge, whether to remove resistance to what he's preaching, verse 9, 
You recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. Maybe he wanted to remove resistance to the gospel, maybe to to set an explicit example of hard work, or maybe because these new believers were under financial strain and they couldn't support him, or they needed to be discipled in other more important areas. Whatever, Whatever the reason was, they, restrain, they refrain from their right to earn a living by the gospel in order to minister to these people. And that required a lot of work to support themselves in addition to preaching faithfully in order to build them up in their faith. And these people could attest to that. This was evidence to them. They saw Paul go to work every day. They saw him in the marketplace making his tents. They knew what he had talked about, how he had led them, how he had supported themself, himself, how he didn't ask to be supported. And no doubt they were grateful for that. They recognized the sacrifices he had made. And then he goes in verse 10, and he's seeking to set an example for the flock. So he ministers uprightly. They were godly. They were righteous. They were without fault, he says. You are witnesses, so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave towards you. And then he's urgently warning them, earnestly ministering, just as you know, how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children. It's like he's taking each of his children in his hand. And you know your children. You know their their tendencies, their strengths, and their weaknesses. You know what they've struggled with their whole lives, and now they're going out on their own, and you're just imploring them desperately to live wisely. He's urgently stirring their will, each person's will, to live the Christian life. He says, exhorting you. This is a different, this is the same word as before, rather. Addressed to the will. He's tenderly cultivating each one's desire to live the Christian life. He's comforting them, you may have in your margin. uh, Encouraging you. He's trying to stir their love for God. He's kind of insistent about informing them teaching their minds about living the Christian life. He's testifying to them. He's got experience in the Christian life. They're naive, just like a child who has no life experience, and they need to hear what's coming to them in the world. It's like a father who longs for his children to live godly. I think there is application even to fatherhood here exhorting, encouraging, testifying to children, especially about spiritual matters. Uh, A prime example of this is the father of Proverbs. Sometimes we gloss over the the times when he's imploring his son, but that's what he's doing. He's imploring with his son to hear, to heed his words. He knows the way of wisdom, and he knows there's a path that his son will choose, and he's urging him to choose the path of wisdom, trying to win his heart. And this is an example of godly fatherhood, not being casual about the souls of his children, but being urgent, even as they're growing. He knows things that they don't know. And that responsibility is weighing on him. May the Lord help us to follow this example in our own families. All of Paul's ministry, his verbal ministry, his, his example supported God's goal for these people. He's, he's been driving at this goal this whole time. And he wants them to remember this goal clearly, why he was doing all this. What was he so urgent about? 
with each person in that church? What goal did Paul have for each of them that drove him to the lengths that he went to? That they would live a life pleasing and honoring to the God who had saved them. Verse 12, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And here we see one of the, the central theme of the letter. God preserves those he calls by sanctification. He's urging them to follow the path of sanctification because God called them. That is how they will persevere under rising pressure. He knows that. He's experienced that. He's felt the pressure in every city that he's gone to. But these little tender lambs, they don't know it yet. But he knows there's only one path, and it's the path of pleasing God in your life. God-pleasing pastors serve God by goals that he approves of. And this is the goal that Paul ministered for. And he says first that God powerfully calls sinners into the light. Actually, in the second half of the verse, the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. God calls sinners, doesn't he? There's, there's the general call of the gospel given by a preacher to all people to repent and believe. Anybody can hear that, anybody with ears. And we need to be sure that we do hear that external call. But only God can call a person savingly, or sometimes we call it effectually. There's another call that only God can give, and he does give it. And it's a powerful call in the heart of a man to draw him to himself. No man can come to the Father unless the Father draw him. This is God's effectual call by grace. And Paul says that God calls sinners into his kingdom. And it's a kingdom not of darkness, but of light. God calls sinners out of darkness into light. But Paul also says that God calls them, calls them, has called them into his own kingdom and glory. What did Moses say? Lord, show me your glory. And Jesus does, or God does in Exodus 33. God's glory, is, of course, is his perfect character, his unique excellence, his, his virtue. And it's so perfect and whole and good that it, it shines like a bright light upon which no man can look, not even the angels. And even God said to Moses, you cannot see my face, for no man can see me and live. But when God powerfully calls us from death to life and illumines our spiritual understanding by his spirit, Paul writes that we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. To glory. Why is that? Well, because he writes in 2 Corinthians, God who said Let light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. As we read the word, as we see the glory of God in Jesus Christ in the word, once we have the spirit ministering the word to us, we are transformed into the image of Christ for God's glory. God saves people and reveals the light of his glory to them through Jesus Christ. For he is the one who explains God to us, the one in whom we see the Father most clearly. God calls sinners into his kingdom, into his glory, and he intends that they live like they've been called. 
God calls sinners into the light, but God consistently calls sinners to live in the light. You see that in verse 12. This was his goal, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of God. God is in the light. We even heard it last week. It's Pastor Joel preached from 1 John. God is light, and he's brought us into fellowship with him there. And we need to abide in him. Romans 8 speaks of God calling people according to his purpose, conforming them to the image of his Son. Those he called, he justified and glorified. God calls sinners to sanctify them and glorify them, to make them like Jesus Christ. That is how God, why God works all things according to good, to make his people like Christ. God is restoring the image of Christ in fallen people for his glory. And we need to pursue Christ's likeness, even as God is working that in us. We are not our own. We are bought with a price. You might be free from sin, but you're not free from a master. Jesus is your Lord. And you must walk in a manner worthy, honoring God, de- deserving of that holy upward call of God on your life, Exemplif- exemplary, testifying to the God who called you into his own kingdom and glory. We must not forget what God has saved us from and what he saves us to. And don't we need the Lord's help with this? We always need the Lord's help with this. This was Paul's goal. This is why he spoke as he did, why he taught as he did, why he acted like he did, why he sacrificed himself like he did. This was his soul's ambition, to see people living worthy of God who called them into his own kingdom and glory. And you should ask yourself, is that your goal? Is that your goal? Maybe you think about your pastor in terms of, well, yeah, he's supposed to do that because that's his job. I've got my job. He's got his job. I'll do my job. He needs to do his job, and we just kind of stay out of each other's business. His goal doesn't have to be my goal. I've got my goal. I've got to make sales. I've got to do this. He's got his goal, and that's fine. Do you realize that this isn't just man's goal? This is God's goal for you. For every Christian. You can't just look the other way about this. What is your goal in life? Is it to make money? Is it to have a happy family? Is it to get your kids a good education? Is it to conserve some political idea? Is it to educate people for their good? These might be worthy goals, but if we fail to take God's goal for us, for ourselves, then we have missed the whole point of why God has saved us. God called us into the light so that we would live in the light. This was the nature of Paul's ministry, his preaching and his teaching as well as his behavior. It all served God's goal, and he pursued God's goal, God's way. And that was, that was verifiable proof that this church could point to for assurance that he really was an apostle approved by God to do what he did. And that was a comfort to them. That was an encouragement to them, and it can be to us as well. They could know that he was authorized by God. No no matter who came along claiming otherwise, trying to defame him, God-approved ministers pursue God-pleasing goals using God-appointed means. This has been, I trust, a picture 
of a godly man that God gives to the church to follow. Imitate me as I imitate Christ, Paul said. And may the Lord give to our church such men. And may he help us to support them by our prayers and then to imitate their faith as God would have us to do. Because to do so is to live by faith in taking God's goal for us, for our Christian life, and believing him and living as we've been called. May the Lord help us. Let's pray. Father, we need reminded often of what you would have us to be about. Even as Paul exhorts these people, as he often did, we need reminders too. We know that your word speaks about this often, and we can't just drop it because it's important. We need to recalibrate ourselves to what we should be doing and how you intend to be working in our lives. But Father, thank you that we have the assurance that it is you who works in us both to will and to do of your good pleasure. We're not on our own. You're actively increasing our desire, if we're walking by the Spirit, to, to live according to your will and to do what we ought to be doing. And Lord, thank you for godly pastors that we have had in our church and perhaps other places that you've put us. These are a comfort to us and a blessing to us, and they have often been. But Lord, thank you that we can remember that our hope ultimately is not in a man. Our hope is in you, Jesus Christ, the head of the church. Help us to fix our eyes on you. And as any man is imitating you, may we also imitate you. Give us, give us zeal to do your will. We love you, Lord. Help us to live by faith. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.